Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity, see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This is an episode for my real joke heads out there, as my guest is Patton Oswalt. This is Patton's second time on Good One. The first time was in May 2018, which, as I mentioned in the interview, was almost exactly two years after his wife unexpectedly passed away, and one year after he filmed a special about his year of grief. We discussed that special, Annihilation, and how working on material about his loss helped him process it and move forward. It is easily one of the episodes of this show I'm most proud of. With Patton returning to Good One, I wanted to really spend more time on joke writing and how he thinks about comedy. We discussed a joke about Cyril from his 7th hour special, I Love Everything, which is out now on Netflix. When preparing, I found him doing a version of the joke on Conan in August of 2018. The joke stays structurally the same, but it's clear that the writing changed quite a bit over the next year, leading up to his recording in September of 2019. For much of the interview, I have him explaining how and why he made the changes he made. Because this conversation ends up being one of our most detailed, instead of at the top, we're actually going to play the joke about 14 minutes in, so the words remain fresh for that part of the interview. So, here is Patton Oswalt. I am here with comedian Patton Oswalt. Thank you for joining me. Mm. I took a sip of tea when you said hello. I know. I was like, I was trying to think of a longer intro to do while you're (laughs) Hello. How are you? Good. You know, pretty good. So um, as this interview is sort of a sequel, I want to start a little bit with our, our first interview, which we did in May 2018, almost exactly two years after your wife, Michelle, surprisingly passed away, oh, yeah. and almost exactly a, a year after you filmed Annihilation, the special about your year of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, even compared to the press you were doing around the special's release in October 2017, it felt by the time we spoke, the fog of everything was clearing up a little bit. Yeah. Um, did it feel that way for you? It well, it just I, I just felt closer to, and and this is all relatives, but I, obviously I felt closer to, oh, my feet are on the ground, and I can figure mm-hmm. out, you know, what my next steps should and maybe shouldn't be, you know, and just trying to, you know, feel more like I was 
living in the living world, which for a while I didn't feel like I was a part of. I just didn't feel like I was a part of that. You know, as it as it relates to sort of then figuring out who you're going to be as a stand up, you know, usually it feels like, a, you know, a, st- a stand up comedian will film a special, but also sort of continue touring the hour before it comes out mm-hmm. so they can so they can start working on new material. Yes. So then when it so when the special comes out, they're not left with nothing. But it felt like with this, it's more of like a thing you wanted to be done with. Yes. When I was done with that special annihilation, I didn't want to do any of that material again. I wanted to like, so like the minute it was the minute that I recorded the actual special, um, which I recorded in Chicago, I just sort of took a break from doing paid stand up. I did little open mics, you know, at the yeah. comedy store and Largo and places like that so that I could generate, but I, I just felt bad making anyone pay to see me, work on stuff because unfortunately i don't i wish i had the discipline like the the way that jerry seinfeld does to sit and write material but my all my best writing happens on stage and that's just that's my how i work so i have to take the good and the bad with that and and the bad was well if i'm not doing the material again i can't tour on this special i just can't do it so i had to really you know take a break and start working on the new stuff that way um, in your 2015 book, Silver Screen Fiend, you talk about the idea of night cafes. Referencing a painting from Van Gogh, the idea is you enter a place and leave a completely different person. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in the book, you write about five of them. The most recent is the birth of your daughter. Yeah. But um, this moment reminds me a bit of the third one, which is in May of 1992, four years into doing comedy. After moving to San Francisco, you performed on a show with sort of the vanguard of that scene. And you're blown away by what they were doing and the risks they were taking so much so that you went to a local restaurant and ripped out all the pages of your joke book. Uh, that was so dramatic. <laughs> it was. It's so. It felt like a per- reading that you're like. It felt like a person be like, "This is a story that I need to have a moment." So when I tell this story, it's well, dramatic. It, I. It wasn't that I was thinking in terms of a story, but like I needed a a violent action to make me remember mm. that moment and to remember that evening in. I was weird. I, I, I was I was back in San Francisco late last year uh, with my wife Meredith, and we went to that restaurant, Taiwan restaurant on Clement Street, and we sat at the exact table that I sat at that night. And go, this is where I ripped out my notebook, and then I just wrote whatever. I think that day was May sixth. I wrote five six ninety two at the top right corner and had it on a blank page and just started that way. Yeah. So what with this special, did you know? When you were thinking about whatever it would be, did did it feel a little bit like the pages were empty in sort of an existential way? You know, what did it feel like? What direction did that point you in? It was two things. It was scary, but it was also kind of exhilarating. It was almost like that there is something there's something to be said about having freedom from choice. Like I didn't have any choices at this point. I had only one way forward. I saw who the best working comedians were and I at the, at the time just did not belong with them. And I had to go, okay, you got to start being as funny as Margaret Cho and Brian Posehn and Gregory Barrett and Greg Proops and Laura Milligan and, you know, people like that, Dana Gould and, you know, all these people that were doing it. So I had to really go, well, you know, the, what the, the positive about this is you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. You just, you have one way forward. So let's do it. So that in a weird way, it was kind of freeing. There is something freeing about going, you, you do this one thing or you, you you can't do this. 
Now, with this special, were there similar feelings of, well, you can't go backwards to the type of the thing you're talking about? That was a, right. that was a discrete story. That was a discrete moment. Did it feel either like, as you put Night Cafe, or just a moment of, I'm a different comedian than I was, I guess, two specials ago? And what did that mean to you as you were looking forward? I mean, it, it really felt to me like um, this new special was kind of a resurging of the life force, whereas the last one, Annihilation, was I really was kind of looking at whether I wanted to or not, you know, being in despair, being a widower, being alone. And this new one was about, without explicitly saying it, was miraculously being in love again with a miraculous person that is just taking you to this elevating you to this level that you just didn't know existed and and just going i'm going to be funny even though i'm also really really happy right now which i know a lot of comedians including me are like am i funny if i'm if i'm this happy and i just said i'm just going to go for it i'm going to go for it you started working on this special before you turned 50 but seemingly from the stuff i saw it seemed like you knew this was going to be the special after you came out well, after you turned 50 it wasn't that i knew that it was just like again i was trying to be very very present and aware in everything that was happening to me so part of in the process of doing this special i did turn 50 and you know and i paid attention to whatever thoughts i had both profound and stupid um you know th- there's a there's something really cool about Sometimes when you, uh, the self-importance of hitting certain milestones in your life where you have to check yourself and go, okay, calm down, dude. You're not, you're not Bob Dylan. This is not the end of an era. <laughs> like you're just, you're, you're a friggin' comedian for God's sakes. And, and you're 50, you're a little slower and you have a harder time losing weight. That's not a huge life change. Chill out. You know what I mean? Like, cause I, cause I have friends, you know, colleagues or and people that I know of or just acquaintances in this business that are in their 90s for God's sakes and they're still as um you know quick-witted and and fun so I can feel Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks in my head laughing at me for going hey I'm 50 now I mean things really and they're like would you shut up you know like they're just I can just feel them yeah. laughing at me so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go that deep with it you know um so when we last spoke uh, I asked you about writing and the idea of what writing means and writing on stage and how in previous interviews you always will be like any day now I'm going to be start writing out a new process and I'm going to write it down and I feel like even still with this like a year ago I heard you in an interview be like you know I decided to change my process up um because you know I think you put it the with with annihilation it was sort of like it was an you the tools you had built sort of like took over for you a little bit where you just sort of like, I have these tools. Yes. And this, wow, that's and this felt way, like, that's a good way to put it. There was this kind of, it's almost like I was surrendering to whatever skills I had built up at that point. Sometimes in a, I, th- I think in a horrified way of like, I'm actually going to use stand up comedy to get me through that. Like there is that yeah. sense of, Oh wait, is this appropriate? So that, Wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah, you're, you sometimes you have to surrender yourself to your skills. You know, I what I always found really interesting about you is you you will look at what you're doing and be like, I need to stop doing a thing that is my crutches or my the things that I sort of get known for. Yes. Oh, was yeah. there an, an analysis of that? And what were the changes that you were hoping to do as you sort of were moving into oh, being a 50-year-old comedian? Yeah, that's a really good way. You know, there, there's certain like phraseologies and certain rhythms that I've that worked for me in a really, you know, the whole uh, 
something is blah blah blah, and then it's a concept like failure yeah. pile in a sadness bowl, or a, you know, and yeah, that. But you could easily just keep doing variations on that. Like, how about I just have a big cup of jealousy, you know? Um, but you, yeah, I remember there was an interview with Alan Moore that he was like, whenever I start seeing a repeated motif in my writing, I go out of my way to carve it away. And it's hard to mm. do that because you work hard to get to those motifs, but you've got to carve them away or you'll stagnate. And so it, it's, it's the famous uh, story of Benny Goodman having his, all of his calluses surgically removed and his hands wrapped so they would heal fresh and he had to learn to play his clarinet a different way. But in doing that, he wrote completely different music that was even more, you know, amazing. So, but that's a, it's a it's a weird push pull back and forth because you struggle to get to a point of confidence and then that confidence mm -hmm. can lead you to calcification and so to to catch those moments it's really really hard and there's times and when you do get older and you do get a little tired you're like can i just i i'm just gonna do this it works but then you think yeah. like the the zigs and zags that like a martin scorsese does with his movies and his art and you're like i'm just gonna shoot for that i want to do that could you think of anything specifically you wanted to do differently? Um, I wanted to not rely on the, oh, look at me. I'm just this helpless schlub. Um, mm -hmm. I, mean, I still do dumb schlubby things. But if you're at the age of, if you've reached the age of 50 and you've been at your career for 31 years, but you're still trying to put on the, woe is me, I'm this overwhelmed Young, you know, it, it just seems yeah. fake. It, it's just, and, and again, there's other things I'm overwhelmed by, but to, but to be the, um, uh, how am I, I don't know how to handle this. I depart, yeah. but, you know, that's, you're lying. You're, you're, you're putting on a persona because mm -hmm. you know that that will get that reaction. It's, it's actually a little, I remember one time I saw, uh, Dana Gould. He was, I did a comedians of comedy show at the Troubadour and I, and he, was nice enough to be a guest on it. And he went up, it was a room, all 20-somethings, all people in their 20s there to see comedians of comedy. Um, Zach Galifianakis was on the show and Sarah Silverman. And Dana Gould went up and just embraced the fact that he was in his late 40s and was like, all the things that matter to you people, they don't matter. And I know this because I was there. And now that yeah. age, I can look back. And he, and he didn't do it in a judgy, lectury way. He was just like, I'm just letting you know where you're going to go. I still have things that I don't understand, but there's stuff that you don't under understand that I actually do. And yeah. we got such a huge laugh from it because at their core, the, uh, you know, those shows were about being completely honest. So Dana was like, well, I'm going to be completely honest. And, and I'm at a different level right now. And it was so, and he, but he still made it funny and vulnerable and, re and real. So I, you know, and also I, I was, I was really conscious of not trying to rely on the, it's what that title I love everything means. I was not trying to rely on the, let me point out how stupid this is and how stupid yeah. this is. You know, you get to a certain age, you understand too much and you're like, yes, this person's an asshole, but I know why they're being an asshole. So it's hard for me to just point a finger and be the superior person going, this is bullshit or this, you know, I, I was, I was starting to go there two specials ago, that whole bit that I do about Nickelback where I'm like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm not a fan of their music, but what the hell have they done to harmony? Well, they just yeah. they did music. People went and bobbed their heads, and they went home. Like, 
compared to what other people do to make money on this planet, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good <laughs> yeah. choice they made. That's commendable. So, you know, I was trying to go more that way with it. And I think also, I mean, as you get older, you realize that the best comedy comes out of stuff that you love, which is what makes Mel Brooks a comedy genius because when he was young and had every right to be this pissed off young man, all of the movies that made him, that he did when he was young, were all about things that he loved. He wasn't doing... I'm going to do a piss take on it. He did Blazing Saddles because he was mm-hmm. obsessed with Westerns. He loved them. And when you truly love something, you're like, I still love this, but why is this one horrible thing in it? Like, you know, and then the Frankenstein films and Russian literature and all his years working on Broadway, he loved those subjects. And when you love something, that's when you see the deepest flaws. When you hate something, you're just dismissing it and you're only looking, Mm. you're reacting to its surface. When you love something, that's when you always see the deepest flaws. And then you go, there's, there's a deep, deep flaw in this thing I love and I still love it. I still, I don't care. You know, Joss Whedon, who was so anti-misogyny and pro-women, but he was like, but I loved all those 80s slasher films, Friday the 13th, which are the most, mm-hmm. how do I reconcile this? And that's why he made Cabin in the Woods. So let's get to the joke now, which is about cereal. There was one big change. I, I will give 50 this. There, the one big change for me was all of a sudden, my breakfast cereal became deadly serious. <laughs> like, I, like overnight, I remember... Recently, my breakfast cereal was fun. The boxes were bright, and there were words like sugar and pow and crisp in the name. And then there was like an animal mascot screaming next to a bowl full of colors insulting to nature. Nothing, nothing in the visual spectrum went into my body in my 20s and 30s. And you turn the box over and the fun didn't stop. You turn the box over and there was a word find or a maze. A maze. Help Sugar Bat get to his insulin. And now all of all of my breakfast cereal, first off, the box is white. Hospital white. And there's a beige bowl, a color of beige I like to call bargaining beige. (laughs) Like, how many bowls of this do I have to eat so I can have one cool ranch Dorito at 3 o'clock today? (laughs) That many? And inside the beige bowl, brown cereal. Not chocolatey brown. Not fudge brown. As brown as the dirt in the grave that awaits you. (laughs) And there's no sugar or power crisp in the name. The name is very serious. Sorghum Farms. (laughs) Sorghum Farms Amaranth Flakes. And you turn the box over. Is there a word find? Is there a maze? No. But there is a short novel about the hippie organic cult farm 
where they're growing my amaranth flakes paragraph after paragraph of everything you never wanted to know about sorghum farms. At sorghum farms, we believe in three simple things. Farm-the-table eating, locally sourced ingredients, and giving back to the earth three times what we take away. The idea for sorghum farms happened outside of a fish concert in 1990. We were both selling tie-dye in the parking lot, and we wondered out loud at the same time why our gorp couldn't be tastier. And that's when we both said, Jinx, I owe you a kombucha. And we bought a little farm upstate that was built in 1500. Ah! I'm 50. I can't have coffee anymore. If you're going to make me read the saddest John Cheever short story first thing in the morning, could you put a couple of startling, disturbing sentences in it? They don't need to be true. Just something to jolt me awake so I can start my day. Because I'm doing my part. I'm eating cereal that tastes like an unpopular teenager's poetry. So please give me a couple of fucked up sentences. <laughs> Sitting there chewing this shit, reading the back of the box. Sorghum Farms, we believe in three simple things. Oh, sweetie, they have a manifesto. Look at this. <laughs> hmm. Farm to table eating. Okay. Locally sourced ingredients. Oh, okay. And the idea that black people can walk through walls when it rains. <laughs> Holy shit. Did you, oh my God, they're fucking crazy. Hang on. Every field of buckwheat we grow is fed by the bodies of three drifters. Oh shit. Sweetie, it's a, yeah, it's a murder farm. They're murdering people. I, oh my God, wow. I gotta go on a hike. I, I have a roomy, fertile torso. This could grow a lot of buckwheat. I don't want to end up at Sorghum Farms in the sharing silo. <laughs> so, like, to talk more specifically about the, the cereal joke, which, <laughs> which you know, on its surface, or if you're not paying attention or, like, didn't hear what you just said, you'd be like, oh, this is a joke about a guy who hates healthy cereals. Can you talk about how in your head this is a joke about a thing you love? Just sort of in that vent. Because I'm embracing the fact that as I'm getting older and my food is getting quote unquote more serious and less silly, there are still silly elements to it. And then I'm really kind of embracing that. Oh no, there's still silly. I'm sure that there's when I have to start drinking and shore and using a walker, I'll find something both lovable and silly about that. So the, 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 the joke hinges on me going, all of my breakfast cereals are so deadly serious. And that line in itself, that you're taking breakfast cereal so seriously. You know, Deadly and, serious. And, and that they want to show you, like the cereal wants to show you how serious they're being now. And no, no, we're not being like those other, we're not being like Captain Crunch or, or, or Cookie Crisp. We're actually, you know, like, you know, mm. I, I would be happy to just be, and by the way, now someone just pointed out, there's a, there's some company that are doing the healthy cereals, but they're doing them 
like fun cereals from your youth. Mm-hmm. Re- for people that are now, for boomers that are in their 60s and 70s who want, they just want the experience mm-hmm. of, and it's all like gluten-free, no sugar, natural ingredients, but it's brightly colored, like blueberry, and a, there's a cocoa one because at the end of the day, especially look at the world that's going on around us. Can I have a goddamn bowl of fun cereal for yeah. in the morning before I have to go face the razor blade forest we all seem to be living in right now? Like, so I kind of I I, I really appreciate that. And by the way, mom, of all you know, everyone has like certain junk things they have to have mm-hmm. in the house. Like, I I try to eat healthy, but I got to have this one thing because I goddamn love it. The thing that my wife loves, she loves fun kitty junky cereal, and that is her. Comfort mm. is a bowl of late at night, a bowl of a uh, Cap'n Crunch or Cocoa Crisp. She doesn't have it every day, but she's like, I like knowing that it's there in case I need it. You need that, yeah. You know, I get it. I totally yeah. get it. It's great. Um, I'm. I really like jokes like these, which are sort of small jokes. Jokes about small things that are about big things. You know, like I think I like I think like a Jerry Seinfeld joker. Every joke his jokes are about small things, but they're actually about. Big All things. of his things are about he and um, Tom Papa and Brian Regan on the clean side and then Dave Attell kind of on the dirtier side. All of their stuff, all their premises are about the most mundane, seemingly non-important things. And then as they think about them, you realize that, oh, no, they're actually uncovering a yeah. cosmic truth about human beings just yeah. the way human beings are if there's something so amazing about that so to start off with that you know i love when you can take something that just seems so like brian regan will start into a, a joke about greeting cards and you're like i've heard a million jokes about greeting cards what the hell you know where is this going and then he turns it into something where you're like oh like i hadn't even like that's actually mm-hmm. kind of one of those that's like a james joyce epiphany and He's talking about that whole, he does, again, this is a very old bit of his, but the bit he does about going into Dunkin' Donuts and buying donuts and buying mm-hmm. a dozen donuts. And you're like, okay, well, I'll get two chocolate. You have 10 left. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I meant like <laughs> this immediate tension, but all you're doing is getting, to, like, it is one of the funniest things. And mm-hmm. when you see people watching it and they're reacting like, obviously they're laughing because he performs it so well, but they are, you see them, flipping back into their own head of like, I did that. Exact-. And if you see this whole room of strangers with wildly different backgrounds, but they're all going, did we all do the same stupid <laughs> yeah. donut thing? Do we hang on? Is that it? So if that's what we have in common, then there truly is no, like, why are we different about anything? Like if, yeah, if yeah. we're all reduced to the same, like, wait, no, I don't want three maple. I take one back because like it, it's, it's just amazing. It's it's startling to see that. For for this joke, did you start with the big picture idea, or do you start like I just want to write a joke about cereal? What am I saying here? I I never said again. I don't. I wish I could say that I sit and write jokes. I think I was shopping in the store, and I had I had found out you know from a I took I went to a um um uh nutritionist. Not a nutritionist. What's the person they test you for out al- an allergist? I went to an allergist. Mm. And I found out that I had a gluten allergy. I had called, I think it's called like leaky gut. Like you're not supposed to have gluten or something. So now I'm looking at all the gluten-free healthy cereals and I'm trying to, and it just, I was starting to, and I passed over it a couple times, but on the back of every box were these 
very earnest short mm-hmm. stories about the you know the farm and showing you the people and you're like no one who's eating this stuff care. like you know the, the fact that that much effort more mm-hmm. effort was put into four paragraphs on the back of a box of cereal than than like you know um uh than alice monroe puts into one of her short stories you know what i mean like I, I just picture Alice Monroe reading the back of like an Ezekiel box going, this is way too much work. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you probably could have gone with the first draft. I don't put this much work into my stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? So that level of um, there's something about that. That's why like James Joyce in Ulysses puts so much ad copy because there's all this weird accidental personal angst that leaks into advertising copy and just industrial writing that is so funny when you spot it, mm-hmm. you know? So I just, I love that. So that's, it started with that. And then it really was just something you sort of like played around with in your head and would talk about yeah. on stage. Just kept, I mean, again, and it was a going up every night, starting off and, and also just being very lucky that I had, I have friends around me, I blank a patch and, and Tom Papa and, Karen Kilgariff and people like that, that I would do the bit and then we'd talk about it afterward. Mm. The Sklar, the Sklar brothers are amazing for like, the Sklar brothers are my version of how Jerry Seinfeld has like George Wallace and Colin Quinn. Um, yeah. He has the nugget of a bit. And then they were like, what if this, and this, and you're like, Oh God, that's right. You know? So having, I never want to lose having people around me, friends that can, that not only can add to your bits, but also, or not in a mean way, just like, Dude, that I, I know that that bit's really working, but it's been done. That angle has been done a million times. I'm just trying to save you from being mundane. You know, like that I love. Yeah. I, I So I want to talk about specific beats in the joke. Sure. So I thought what would be useful is you did a version of this joke in August 2018 for panel on Conan. So that's, so, oh my God, that's right. It was a different <laughs> version, wasn't it? So it's very useful to see how a joke gets written because I can you can see how you change the joke mm-hmm. in the a little over a year from when you did that and when you taped it. So I'm going to go through the changes and we'll we'll see how this goes. So uh, the first first in the special, the joke is the boxes were bright with like sugar and pow and crisp in the name. Where on Conan, the joke was like, and the box was primary colors. So why that change? Here, oh, okay. There's a very specific reason because. <laughs> I got such a big laugh later when I would go and eat. It's a cartoon mascot standing in front of a bowl that contained colors insulting to nature. Mm. But repeating the word colors lessened the impact of that line. So I had to lose colors from the earlier one so that the only time I used the word colors was there. You don't want to overuse a word that's a laugh line. So that's why I changed it. Wow, dude. Good catch. There's a a bunch of these. It's it's actually... Very satisfying, I think. So um, the one of the first big jokes, which is help Sugarback get to his insulin, on Conan, it's Sugar Bear. Yeah, you know why? Because <laughs> then I realized there actually was a mascot called Sugar Bear, and I didn't mm-hmm. want them. And also, I'd seen other comedians make fun of the fact that Sugar Bear got turned into Honey Bear. Remember that in the 80s when suddenly you had to make it honey or fruit sweetened or whatever? So I'm like, I just, it, it, it's in this thing that's already been explored. So I'm like, what is a funny fake animal mascot? <laughs> the idea of a sugar bat, is there something that, but again, you could see that was a, like a, a frustrating day at the ad agency. And the guy was like, it's a bat. All right. 
just sugar bat. And people were like, bat? He goes, look, Frankenberry and Booberry. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's something else about the way you tell this joke that, I, that what I wanted to ask about, which is you sort of, how do it's hard to describe how you put it, which is you say, uh, help Sugarback get to his insulin and now, like you immediately start the transition to the next part of the joke. Do you, uh, this is do you gonna, know what I mean? Well, it's going to sound kind of sorry. I know that always gets a huge laugh, and there's nothing that looks more boss as a comedian than when you're trying to continue on and they're just all laughing. Like, I know how that, I just saw how that landed, so I don't want to, like, I, it, it's just, look, I, it's just me trying to look cool. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm not going to even lie to you. When you know it's going to be huge, you know, and you're just going to move on, and then you, so you, it's it's you're making it seem like oh, I got to stop you laughing too much. I mean, I'm so amazing, and <laughs> and comedians do it all the time. Um, so the the biggest part that you expand between the Conan part and the Pine Do special is sort of a just sort of a series of jokes about the beigeness of the box. It's the <laughs> densest part of the joke. There's sort of it's hospital white bargaining beige and brown as the dirt in the grave that awaits. Right. So it's just like. Right. How can how did that how did you approach the section? What were you thinking, sort of, as you built this part out? That just happened organically, um, night after night, and it was all about me thinking of. I just described the brightest, most fun, dynamic box. So, what is the opposite of that? And what is the thing where again, it's the the it's the people putting the product together, trying to tell a story to the people that would be consuming it, which is, don't you want to avoid the hospital? Don't you want to be reasonable the way that this bargaining beige is reasonable and uh, your grave is on the horizon. So maybe <laughs> like there's that weird, I just love the, I think uh, um, Amanda Palmer pointed out whenever a corporation does an ad and there's someone playing a ukulele in it, they're selling something horrifying, which is why they're making it look all folksy and you know, mm-hmm. who knows? It's like they're selling some kind of poison or weapon. Uh, in, in general, like, how do you think of density of sections? I was thinking at some point in one of your specials or one of the albums, you talk about how the joke was like a pixie song where it's like there's a loud part. <laughs> but like, I met But in general, do you think of the rhythm of like, oh, this is the sort of middle. We're going to have it be sort of faster. punchline. I, I, I don't think of it again. I, I It's hard for me to think of it beforehand. You have to test run it and see what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And. I just like stuff that's fun to say. There are certain things that roll out of your skull and they feel good. It's like you're singing a song and it's like Mm -hmm. a part of a song or a passage of music that you're like, I cannot wait to sling this out onto the world because I love the effect that it has when it lands. And it's just a very, it's a very pleasurable feeling and it makes you excited because you do have to do a lot of times, you have to do the same jokes every night and make them feel real. So how do you do that? You make them fun and interesting for you. Mm-hmm. The the last interview you talked about how doing unloading the dishwasher was a, a great source of creativity for you. How you kind yes. of wanted, is there so now with another interview? Can you give us other places in which you often find uh, the muse striking you? The two things are folding laundry and then putting it away, and then still, man, loading a dishwasher. I, I, if I ever start making movies and have to really like prepare for like. The next day, I'm going to go to some restaurant and go, let me just do the dishes for two hours. <laughs> I used to do a di- dishes in a, uh, I was a dishwasher at an Italian restaurant. It was one of those things where they had the big plastic rack. And you'd load them all up and then shove them into the thing and then mm-hmm. close it. And I had the, I had some of the most creative thoughts. I don't know what it is, man. But I still, um, 
the in, in the house at the end of the day, I'm like, everyone stack the dishes by the sink. I'm going to do them. Like it, it's almost like don't mess that thing up for me. That's mm-hmm. mine. Don't do that. Like I get and I get angry when I come down and someone has put the dish away because oh, they never put the dishes away correctly. There's a certain way you can just treat it like a Tetris game. Don't just put a dish diagonally and it takes up four rows and then you have like three spoons on the top for no reason. There's a re- oh, sorry. What? There's something about you describing what it is about dishes that you can hear it trigger the sort of organizational parts of your brain. It is because you know why? Because it's like that you, you're looking at all of these disparate shapes and sizes and you've got to make them all fit. And a lot of times with a story or a comedy bit, it's all these differing thoughts, some of which mm. conflict with each other. How do you make it all make sense? So the dishes are like a symbol of that. And it it's like it works that muscle in my brain that I can then apply to other concepts. So, you know, a big baking dish, but then I've got three little small condiment dishes. How do I get them all to fit the best? And also, so in a way, so that I know the way the water is going to be so that they all get cleaned off. Um, speaking of a specific, probably turn of phrase, do you remember coming up with sorghum farms, amaranth flakes? Were there other options? What do you, what was that? No, like, that's I, correct. I don't remember. Again, it's just, um, it's a whole lot of, I just always have words in my head that I think are funny that maybe I'll use or maybe I won't. And something about sorghum and also just, again, sorghum is a thing. The people that run the farm don't know what sorghum is. The people buying the Cheryl don't know what sorghum mm. is, but they all know it sounds good. And so that's why they slap that on there. It doesn't mean anything. It's like the oh, um, interesting. there's a there's a great bit of Star Trek trivia. I didn't know this till recently, but um uh, if you watch a lot of the you know, a lot of in the in the interiors of the spaceship, there are those big exposed pipes, you know, mm-hmm. just that weird design for no reason. And a lot of them <laughs> have the words G N D N on them. That's like a standard that everyone thought, is that like an aeronautic thing or a navy thing? It's a prop master's joke. Those letters stand for goes nowhere, does nothing, or mm. gun done. And that's like a thing that they have. They kind of make fun of it a little bit with Galaxy Quest of like, there's no point in any of these designs. So whenever you see that, you'll see that in a lot of, um, in science fiction, GNDN means so, but it looks cool. It looks official. Yeah. And they just slapped it on there because people look at it like, yeah, I'm sure that means like, uh, <laughs> Gamma neutron drive. No, mm-hmm. nowhere does nothing. By the way, once you know that, if you watch old science fiction, you'll see it everywhere. We'll be right back with more Pat Oswald. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you'd learn that that's the science-y term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. And we're back with Penn Oswald. Um, there, I want to ask you about one line, which is, uh, you go, at Circum Farms, we believe in three simple things, farm-to-table eating, locally sourced ingredients, and giving back to the earth three times the, what we take away, which is interesting because, you know, I think you would expect the third one to be weird or absurd or to not, what's the decision to not hide in it, to just sort of like actually have it be understated in that moment? Because I knew that the joke I would do in a second would be about adding the fourth crazy thing. So I had to have those sound as legitimate as possible to kind of lull the person in. Also, there's a very, and and without me getting too technical about it, (laughs) there is a poetic meter to those that is almost like those S, um, is it called SMS or what's the... um, sound videos that people listen to. Oh, ASMR. ASMR, where it's, you know, farm the table eat, locally sourced ingredients, giving, and giving back to the earth three times what we take away. <laughs> so we're just, I'm, I'm putting you to bed, I'm fluffing your pillow, lifting up the blanket, and putting it on you so you can relax. Like, that's the rhythm of that. So then yeah. when I say that fourth line later, it's, the fuck? But I say it with that same lulling thing, so it takes mm. a second... Like he realizes it as he's reading it. It takes him that long. It, it's, it essentially creates a, a call forward almost. You're essentially like, this is a setup for a joke that's yes. two minutes from now. Exactly. Oh my God, I did a call forward. Ooh. I know. Wow. I know it's very exciting. Yeah. You're formally inventive, Pat and <laughs> Formally inventive. I'm Walt Whitman, man. <laughs> um, this is a small change, but I, I think, I mean, I know why, but you can explain the reasoning, which is, um, on Conan, you go the organic farm and the creepy hippie cult family that's growing the cereal. Where on the special, you go, um, there's a short novel about the hippie organic cult farm where they're growing my amaranth flakes. So it's sort of shorter. Yeah, I just, I wanted it to be shorter and I didn't want it to be the, a family because the family, I realized it sounded clumsy because it sounds like maybe there actually is a family, but the novel about just the farm itself as an object is that was clearly made up but a family is like is there a family behind this i don't know you know so just by removing the family it made it sound even more bullshit corporate the the fish story you add fish stories does not show up in conan i assume that was something you just sort of were riffing or like oh we're telling the story do you remember what you liked about that scene wait the fish about that they met at a fish concert because their gore didn't taste good enough that's interesting there too it originally was we met at a Grateful Dead concert, and I realized mm. the Grateful Dead has kind of aged out in terms of places, a reference that people understand anymore. Like the people that used to meet at Grateful Dead concerts have, not to sound morbid, they're kind of dying out. And so, but when I change it to fish concert, the crowd, ah, like they all, <laughs> that's the generation that gets that now. It's like the reason that I remember um, at, the, at uh, Universal City, uh, at the amusement park, um, at City Walk, they would have um, Beetlejuice walking around, the Blues Brothers, and Laurel and Hardy. 
And then I, I remember there was that one summer, the late nineties, they discontinued Laurel and Hardy because nobody knew who they were. They didn't know yeah. what was going on. It's like, there's a fat guy in a Hitler mustache and then some weird skinny dude. What the, what is this? Like, and, and it's just sad. It happens, but it was a really weird moment where a couple nights I did it with the Grateful Dead concert and it got like a, okay. You know, like from a, yeah. but when I changed the fish, fish concert, everyone went nuts. And I realized, oh, that's a that aged out now. Grateful Dead doesn't have doesn't land like it used to. Yeah, because I imagine people get it, but they can't. They don't know the person. No, exactly. When you say but fish, are like got it. They go fish. They everyone knows a guy or a girl in their office that you're like, they're they're nice, but they play. I took a, oh my god, I made the mistake of going to the company picnic. They gave me a ride, and they played this fucking tape, and I never again. In the special, you say the saddest John Cheever story. On Conan, you say a New Yorker article. Yeah. So, so in general, your opinion, I feel like your approach and your thinking on references has evolved over the time of your comedy. What's your thinking here? What do you think generally about I think references? for some reason I was on a John Cheever jag. I was reading a bunch of articles about his life and then reading some of the short stories about he was just such a train wreck, but, but kind of fascinating. And, and there's just so much goddamn tragedy to all of his stories that um and and also and that i just it, i did it one night like because that's what i was thinking of i was either reading it on the plane on the way to the gig or something and then it got like a huge laugh and i think that it, it gets a huge laugh because some people know who john cheever is but also and this is gonna sound really lame cheever is a funny comedy word it just it just it's like it's like doodle or like it just even if they don't know who it is like john cheever they're like okay i, I know that's a lame but I, I was genuinely saying it because I had been reading a bunch of his stuff, mm -hmm. and I'm like, "My God, how were, how did the New Yorker have any subscribers after his, like how were how were their subscribers just not committing suicide every week after reading this stuff?" You know. Um. In in the last section, there's a there's a really interesting, at least to me, structural difference on on Conan. You just describe the back label sort of in the way you do mm -hmm. the 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 first time, but. In the special, you do it as a scene. You're reading the back label yeah. to a person. What what does that do to the joke? That's that's different because it hey, is a hang slight on one, difference. Hang on one second. What's that? My daughter has just come down. She's about to do a Zoom call for her school. She's looking for her headphones. I'm doing an interview with a uh, vulture. It's a really cool online magazine. We're dissecting one of my bits. Oh God, here she comes. All right, Alice. Get, all right, go to your meeting, you goofball. I swear to God. All right. Anyway, sorry about that. Uh, you were asking. I changed it from describing the contents to actually reading it. Um, yeah. That just came from nights of developing it and realizing it's way funnier if I actually create that moment of reading it. And and again, the the reaction from the crowd was. I think a lot of people have done that. Mm -hmm. I look at the back of these boxes, and, and I'm, I think that. Guessing from the action, there's a there's a commonly shared experience of of reading this box and going, "Are you fuck? What is this? You know, like <clears throat> they're not doing this. This is bullshit." Yeah, you know, which which I liked. Um, this is really small, but in in Conan, um, by I'll the say, way, this is fascinating. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> looking at one version and looking at the other one, this is amazing, dude. I Thank look. You. I was very wow. I'm really sometimes. I hope this is what I usually hope happens, but usually I can't find the mm -hmm. original example. So this is a particularly good version I love of it. This. Everything changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I'm happy to do it whenever <laughs> everyone can find all the examples of yeah, yeah. whatever you want. Um, so on Conan, you say Mexicans can walk through walls when right. it rains, but then in the special, you say black people. It was, uh, this is going to sound so lame. It, it was too many syllables. I, I, I had to have the fourth thing because the fourth thing has to be very, very offensive. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways to make it is to make it as short syllabled and brutal as possible. And, and it just, it hits harder if, yeah. if it's that. And because, because then you get the real, you know, boom, 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 boom. Um, since the, obviously the Conan one didn't need to have a transition because the transition was like, now here's a commercial break. <laughs> he, <laughs> you end the joke with, um, you say, I got to go on hikes now to not be murdered by these farm people. Yes. In general, how do you think about transitions as you write jokes? Like, are, is that important to you? Do you like it? Do you feel like it's overly fussy usually? Like, I imagine it's a, it's a big, it's a very it's a very transitionary transition away that yeah. sometimes you don't even see anymore. Again, Where I feel like even you used yeah. to do like well, the opposite of that. Yeah. I, you know, again, I wish I had the skill to pre-think out a good transition as I'm writing. That was something that developed organically night after night, figuring out a way. There were some nights where it just wasn't, that wasn't there and it was clumsy and there was, you could feel the gears grinding and feel the car lurching. And then I just, found it conversationally and i so i i don't know the exact moment when i fell into that transition but man does it work it does kind of work because it, it like now i'm alarmed by this insane family that i'm imagining growing these mm -hmm. foods and killing people well it's uh well i guess because it's you knew in your set list it's like okay i do the cereal thing and then i do the hiking thing yeah. they're linked so it's like it's i I, the joke ends here and then yada, yada, yada. I'll just, and then eventually yeah. I'll have to say something that connects it or I don't. And, and I just found it. it. And, and it was like, you know, cause it was all in that same section on aging and being kind of amused rather than horrified by aging, like all the silly things we have to do. And it's like, I'm preparing myself for once you get past 50, it's this new parade of silliness that you're going to have to keep dealing with on different levels. So I just decided to embrace it and have fun with it. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth on Conan, you did hiking first, and then Conan's like, is your diet different? And then you Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one night, because a lot of nights I'll switch things up to see how they fall. I think one night I went out, said, you know, said my hellos and thank everyone for being there. And I was like, I'm 50 now, and there's some cheering. I'm like, and I'm not, I'm not amazed that I'm 50. I'm not sad. I'm just fine. I'm 50. And then I go, the one thing that changed was my breakfast cereal got deadly serious. And that line itself got a laugh. And it was mm. such a, it was such a nicer, sharper laugh than the kind of soft ramping up into the hiking. Yeah, I mean it. It is just the idea that this is what you are your example that your first example is this. Yeah, is bigger disconnect than hiking, which is like that does seem reasonable. Yeah, yeah. A person get. But the first thing uh, being breakfast show that is a very, very Jerry Seinfeld, Brian Regan, like I'm going to say the most mundane thing as if I'm dropping the thesis to my like grad paper, you know, and some people go, what? And, and then we're going to go into it. That's, yeah. I mean, especially because it is serial, it feels like particularly Jerry Seinfeld adjacent. Oh yeah. He's yeah. Like, he just, he's so good at that. One thing that I don't know if this was ever in the joke. So oddly enough, you then did Conan's podcast and he set you up to talk about it more. And you had a joke in that, which was my serial used to be Saturday morning cartoons, but now it's British period drama, which you either riff that there or Oh man, I think I riffed that there and I should have <laughs> kept that. I could have done 
Oh, God. I... That was a good one. Why didn't I write that down? <laughs> well, it exists on the podcast. God, that's a good joke. I should have I should have kept that. I, I assumed you had it and you're like, oh, it doesn't fit for whatever reason. Oh, no. Now I feel even worse that's that I great. I just forgot that I had it. Well, you can do one you can go up to like tonight, do it before the special comes out. <laughs> your, Where? Know. Where do I do it? Where do I Oh yeah? Do I stand There's there? Zoom, do a drop in at a Zoom <laughs> show. Zoom drop in. Oh, um, God. You know, we, we've talked about before how um, you, you want moments of discovery in your jokes. Can you think about what is the, the thing that you're discovering here in this serial bit? Um, I think that the, the main thing that I'm discovering is that there is a there is a level of corporate coercion in every single thing mm. that you do or buy and that there's no escaping that like when you think, well, I'm not going to get these Kellogg's or Post cereals. I'm going to go smaller with a little, but no, that that those tendrils and tentacles are there too, and there's no escaping it. And try to have fun with it. Um, you know, you you've described each of your albums or um, specials as sort of issues of magazines, yes. and each issue has a food section. Um, some yeah, of your more true. Some of your most famous jokes ever have been about food. There's Black, Black Angus and, well, and KFC. Know, everybody eats food, so it, it's a great way to relate to people. <laughs> yeah. Is there something about what food brings out about yourself, do you feel like, that is such a good use, especially when you think about your mm. desire for your specials to um, reflect the time period in which the specials were done in your own life? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's not so much it's about what food is to me. I'm just obsessed with how such a basic need gets delivered and commodified mm-hmm. to people in such, for some reason, this thing that would just be that they, it would sell if you didn't do the razzmatazz to it. And the fact that with black Angus or KFC or these natural cereals, it is done at so much strategizing and, um, you know, uh, uh, angst and poetry and literature go into that. Um, and there is such a, uh, it, it's almost like a, another way to just, fractionalize people into tribes with, you know, processed food. And again, this seemingly mundane thing in which people, you know, pick a side, you know, what are you? And so there something about that. I guess, I guess that that just endlessly fascinates me. And also I eat a lot. I like food. <laughs> yeah. Apparently so, you probably eat every day. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. It's weird. I do. I tend to eat like almost every day. So yeah. And I'm trying, uh, to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, Bring people in that to that experience that you know don't maybe they haven't had get that. a window into the life yes of exactly so a weird little window into a rarely seen part of the world. <laughs> um, you know when when preparing for this interview, I, I kept on thinking about two things. First is your your special comes out in the same month on Netflix between Jerry Seinfeld and Hannah Gatsby. Yeah, and and the other and the other thing is this really small moment in your career that. I've been fascinated with, I think, ever since I first heard it, which is in your in your 2007 album, Werewolves and Lollipops. You're telling a story about getting the morning after pill with a person you slept with. Um, and you sort of slow down and you talk about this moment where you had this conversation about imagining having kids together. Yeah. And right when you say it was it was this really vulnerable moment of humanity, someone shouts, woo. No, they go kooka doodle doo. They make a weird oh, really? booster. Sa- yeah. It's really weird. They just go that. That's even crazier. Yeah. And then so you. So then the out the track on the album is you like 
you yell at this person for yeah. <laughs> ruining the joke yeah. and for not understanding what you're trying to do with a comedy. Yeah. So I, I, was, I was just thinking, like, considering a decade later, you were able to sort of frankly talk about losing your wife and have these sort of really small moments. I was wondering your perspective, if you can talk about how far comedy has come yeah. and what has meant to you. It was, you know, that was very much a, a, a snapshot of the time where that was the um, my second album I recorded in a comedy club, Cap City Comedy Club in Austin. And there is a certain rhythm in comedy clubs that isn't there in theaters, for better or worse. There's great things about comedy clubs. There's bad things. There's great things about theaters. There's bad things about theaters. Um, theaters don't have the closeness of a comedy club. But that closeness of a comedy club is people get nervous during quiet parts. And if you're... Mm -hmm bit if the laugh in a bit hinges on having a long quiet part and that bit really did it it hinged on having a very long quiet part and that that's the only night that happened by the way but there was someone there and, and again he wasn't heckling me he wasn't saying you suck he was subconsciously saying i cannot handle this silence i can't handle it there's got to be noise and movement at all moments or I'm going to crawl out of my skin. And so to be able to capture that on, on, uh, on a recording, I thought it's very important. And, you know, that's kind of stuff still happens in comedy clubs, but comedy audiences, I think, especially because of the, you know, that's 13 years down the road, there's been so much more exposure and these kind of shows where comedians mm -hmm. talk about what they do. I think audience members understand a little bit, like trust when there's no sound or no laughs that the, that the man or woman on stage is going somewhere and they know where the hell they're going. Um, and with theaters, it's a little easier to get that. Um, but I think with comedy clubs, it's a little easier to get that these days, but mm -hmm. just because the, the, the audiences have become way more sophisticated and, you know, and keep in mind, you know, 10 years before I recorded that album, if I was doing that in 1997, it wouldn't have even been the silence. that was a problem. It would have been like the ironically embracing something that was terrible. And everyone like, what are you talking? That sucks. And like, I yeah. get to the thing where, I, you know, like they wouldn't be able to, you know, I, I, I remember doing a bit in the early aughts that starts off going, um, one thing I like about George W. Bush, I did it in San Francisco, and the whole crowd started booing me. And I'm like, you know, I don't clearly like him. I'm about, yeah. he's about to turn in a second. And they would not stop booing. They couldn't even deal with the setup. Yeah. Like you, I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to you guys. It, you know, I, it, Sometimes in this podcast, I I tell comedians to their face that that this, which is sort of like, it's easy to be like, oh, change just sort of happens and evolves. But it's also because certain people like put in work to yes. like try to change the audience's understanding of what comedy is. Yeah. And so I was rewatching the Comedians of Comedy tour documentary, which for those who don't know, was a tour you did in 2006, where you and Maria Bamford and Brian Posehn and Zach Galifianakis yeah. and then more people that we sort of associate yeah. with sort of that era of alternative comedy decided to tour where you bypass comedy clubs and performed in rock venues. And in it, you say, we're the ugly motherfuckers who are setting it up for someone else. Someone else is going to spike it. Uh, so we're setting up for the next guy. That's my purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think you're maybe a little down on yourself at the time. But in general, when you look back to that now, as I'm asking you to do, is this kind of what you're hoping for, even for yourself and for comedy? I, you know, I'm not in comedy to succeed and then slam the door behind me and lock it so that no one else can get through. I liked, I started doing comedy because before I did comedy, I loved comedy. I want this art form to keep doing well and growing and expanding and getting better and better and better. I want people to do it that are way better than me in 10 years. I want to become 
I want to be the dinosaur. I want to see it get even better and it's more smarter because as much as I like doing comedy, I like watching it. I like, you know, reacting to it. I watch comedy specials all the time. I, I'm not someone that's just, you know, mm. stuck with a morbid self-regard. So, you know, <clears throat> I, if any little thing I can do to improve the knowledge or the perception of the audience, I'm happy to do it. Um. To, to that end, as you, you talked about, you know, trying to serve the form in, in that way, is that partly why you decided to include um, in your special, Bob Rubin's special, which is the thing yeah. I have, it's, I've never seen it before, which is essentially, just for those who don't know, which is after your special ends, you record a message, go, there's another special by this other comedian, yeah. Bob Rubin, watch that. Yeah, he, Bob Rubin was a comedian uh, from the late 70s, early 80s in San Francisco that was way before alt comedy ever happened, he was doing just absolute um, boundary pushing, meta, ironic humor. It's like the comedy came as much from the jokes as it came from messing around with the form of what the show was supposed to be mm. and did genuinely wild stuff. So he's one of those hidden influencers. Like he's like the Captain Beefheart um, to if, 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 uh, if uh, the alt movement is like Frank Zappa, then that's our Captain Beefheart. That's like one of the first guys that got there that really tried to kick the doors open. And he just sort of kind of never had a special and never really. So he like did a GoFundMe that I helped signal boost that got it. He shot his own special at the Purple Onion in San Francisco. And then he was shopping it around and, and it, nobody was biting. So I just told Netflix, look, let me just present this at the end of my special. Um, just as a, as a reminder to like, especially younger comedians, a lot of the stuff you think that is either so risky or so boundary breaking, someone actually did it before and you should go even farther than you think you're going. So that's kind of why I wanted that to be out there. It was like the, the year that I hosted the independent spirit awards. Um, I was like, you know, this is, it was, I think it was in 2008 or something. I forget what year I did it, but I was like, this is the, 50th anniversary of John Waters' first film. He made it. He was a teenager. It's called Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. Shot it on his parents' roof. It's about an interracial wedding being presided over by a Klansman. Shot it in suburban Baltimore in 1968. So anyone who thinks like, are we going too far? Are we pushing the edge too much? Just know that John Waters is already beyond you. And he did it 50 years ago when he was a teenager. So just fucking go for it, you know? And that's kind of the same thing I'm doing with like Bob Rubin. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking about how a, a lot of artists and especially this with comedians where you start and you're these outsiders mm -hmm. and you're these disempowered people. And then as time goes on, you, you get more power, you, which comes from being more famous or mm -hmm. having more success. And some people still act the same way as if they're outsiders. And I think some people, and I think you've been good at, being like, I'm now this different person. My relationship to my comedy and comedy is different. And as you see, you as what was once alternative, now like you're you're yeah. one of the big guys. How how have you changed your comedy and your perspective to accept the fact that the that you are now a, not to you know like to be gauche, but like sort of now that you are one of the bigger ones. How does that sort of change your perspective, or what do you? think it should you, you need to embrace wherever you are and find out what's funny about that you cannot be the next thing forever it's always fun to be the new thing on the menu it's great i had my time doing that and i still love doing comedy but if you're in your 50s and you're still trying to act like you're this 
put upon 23 year old that the man is keeping down, then now you're lying and you're doing the thing that you used to hate other comedians for doing. Um, you're not being truthful. So, you know, I mean, look, John, John Waters said it best. There's a, a documentary about midnight movies. And he said, everything that we did in stuff like Pink Flamingos and El Topo and Eraserhead that got us X ratings or only got us shown at midnight are now throwaway jokes in PG-13 comedies. So it's silly of me to go, you can't handle my stuff. Well, I obviously made it okay for people to handle my stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I wanted it that way. And now he's like America's beloved gay uncle, just reading books and enjoying life and, <laughs> and spotlighting other things. So if I keep, if I get to keep doing that as a comedian, as a writer and a filmmaker or an actor, then great. Why is that bad? I, yeah. you know, I, um, to quote Sunset Boulevard, there's nothing wrong with being 50. It's only wrong if you pretend to be 20. You said in an interview, you know, like, and I think this is true, which is sort of, there hasn't been a Lester Bangs or a Pauline Kale for comedy no, writing. not really. What? And as a person who, me, which writes about comedy, mm -hmm. which I understand that I'm not the Pauline Kael or Lester Bangs, <laughs> but I think this is a rare opportunity since you're a person who is aware of what criticism mm -hmm. is and you appreciate it. What do you want from that person? Regardless if it's me, it doesn't, I don't expect it to be, but like, what do you want from the existence from a sort of fortified idea of what comedy criticism would be. Someone who has a deep knowledge of the form first, who can, mm -hmm. who literally knows stand up back from uh, almost vaudeville days and has seen the cycles repeat and is able to actually see what's new, what's truly new and what's been prepackaged and go, Oh, actually look, I know why this is popular, but all this person is doing is just prepackaging what Richard Pryor did or what the Monty Python troupe, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, to truly know what is new and, and not mm -hmm. just react to, I think a lot of times comedy criticism, they just react to whatever the crowd is doing. And they're like, this person packed out Madison Square Garden. They must be amazing. And they can't look at the content mm -hmm. or the form or what exactly they're doing. And they get fooled a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is you, you see a lot of people who focus on what people say instead of how people say it is the thing that I... yes. Yeah, how they say it or they, you know, you, the two things you have to keep in mind in comedy is, yes, obviously you have to keep context in, you know, you can't like cancel people out of context, but you also have to keep evolution in mind. There's, yes, we obviously need to keep context, but these people that are digging their feet and going, why can't I say the N word? You used to be able to say, because it's not 1972 anymore and things have moved on. Why do you want, is that what you're fighting for is like, don't you want to figure out what the next thing is? Or, you know, if anything, when when someone, when whatever forces come along, conservative forces or liberal forces or progressive forces come along and 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 squelch a certain form of expression, the fun is finding cool ways around it rather than going, no, I want to dig my heels in and I want things to be like they were 30 years ago. Well, then nobody wins. Yeah. Um, considering a lot of what we talked about, you're like, I did this thing and the audience told me this is what the joke mm -hmm. was. It is, it was very exciting because you really, though you said the words, the audience is telling you what is correct in, yeah. in a way that I haven't heard many comedians really articulate. <laughs> um, you know, how, how do I put this? You know, this, this is the short, you know, in this moment of, of quarantine where people can't be audiences. I know. Has 
has it made you reflect about your relationship to the audience, how you feel and how you sort of feel about them and your creation of your personal art? I mean, on some level, people still get to be audiences because they can clap back at you on Twitter or whatever they want to do. But yeah, there is still an element of like, I always appreciated the audience. I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't understand these people that are like, fuck the audience. Well, that's the easiest thing to do. That's the, you're taking zero risk if you're announcing that I want the audience to walk out. Well, anyone can do that. That's what, what's hard to do is to win an audience over with difficult or weird subjects. So I've always appreciated it. And I also, I want to entertain them. It paid money. I, I want to go to an entertaining thing. I don't want it to be, I don't get anti, I do anti-comedy. Well, then why am I, how, how about I pay you anti-money to see it, you know? <laughs> Um, I just, uh, I've always appreciated the audience and I miss them. I miss, I miss just people getting together, man. Yeah. Um, considering, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the interview, which is the idea that usually a comedian continues to tour on a special after they film it and generate some new material, which I imagine, I guess you probably were able to do with this special a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the special is going to come out, which wipes out a lot of your stuff. Are you... How do you think, and it's what we've talked about, as you said, you can't sit down and write material. Well, I'm going to have to learn how to sit down and write material. I'm just going to have yeah. to get new muscles and, and learn a different way to do this. I, and again, I'm back in that, in that uh, Chinese restaurant in 1992. I have freedom from choice. I don't have a choice. I need to sit and start writing. Is that exciting? We'll see. Can't say yet. <laughs> we will see. <laughs> So that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is a laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing oh, round. Oh, fun. Um, is there a joke from your career that you wish you could rewrite or you thought of a new tag or new angle in at any point? Well, the one you just pointed out, the serial thing. I want to add that <laughs> the uh, British period drama thing to it. God damn it. <laughs> um. Recently, there was a Parks and Recreation reunion, which sadly did not include the character you played, Garth Blunden. Do you know what he's up to now? They have such an embarrassment of riches with that cast. They can't, like, shoehorn me in there. I'm sure Garth Blunden is out um, protesting for them to open, reopen a Shoney somewhere and saying that, you know, back in the old days, they would let the pox ravage the community to figure out who was the strongest. I'm sure he's one of those reopened protesters. (laughs) Um. So this is this was recorded in the the same day earlier this morning. The news came out that Jerry Stiller passed away. Yeah. I want to know if you just had any Jerry Stiller story you'd like to share. I mean, I tweeted a bunch of them today, but I mean, the one that I always remember was talking to him about Lenny Bruce because he and Ann knew Lenny, and I was like, because they would go, we would work at the Purple Onion in San Francisco, and I thought, oh, so he was at the Street of the Hungry Eye, and he's like, no, he was always at the Condor. He liked the strip clubs because they paid better. So whenever you see like footage of him at the bitter end or the hungry eye, that's an anachronism. He liked the strip clubs. He wanted the money, which I thought was beautiful. Um, yeah. Um, and the last one, do you have a joke that has never worked? You would try it over and over again. You were like, this is funny. Let me try it. Nope. Nope. You're going to go to your grave thinking it's funny, but you've maybe have given up or you're still. I, I, on. I'm, I work so hard on the ones that do work. If, if the ones that don't work, I can't waste my energy on them, man. I just, I can't have no time for regrets or bitterness. <laughs> um, that's it. Right. Thank you so much. This was the interview. Thanks man. 
That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Patton's latest special, I Love Everything, now on Netflix. Follow Patton on social media, at Patton Oswalt. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write, review, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week. Have a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery Podcast, WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to sets and hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work.